welcome to episode 275 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got a real treat today in our conversation. We're going to actually take some of all this wonderful theology we've been talking about, both technical and otherwise, and we're going to put a little shoe leather around it, as it were. Oh, man. I'm excited. I I love this kind of stuff. Yeah. So we're going to take some of what we talked about, make it a little bit more practical. And I realize now, in hindsight, how awful this introduction is, because it basically set it up as if the special thing we're going to do is actually apply our theology, (laughs) which... I hope to think is more normative for us. And that's the whole purpose of, of course, good theology is putting it into life practice. But we're going to get there. We're going to talk about inseparable operations. We're going to talk about what it means to be in the spirit of Christ. We're going to talk about all this work of the Trinity in our lives and how we might understand how people speak even colloquially about that. It's all coming very shortly. But of course, I mean, you know what time it is. I do. I do know what time it is. It's game time. It's game time. (laughs) It's tool time. (laughs) And by that, we mean affirmations and denial. So uh, dealer's choice, which direction would you like to go? And I'll give you this heads up. I, one of them I don't actually have. So that's just going to be a fun little. Yeah. I also, one of them I don't have. So let's, I'll start with affirmations and I will hand it off to you first. Cause I think that buys (laughs) me the most time to figure out what I want to deny this week. That's great. So I'm going with this tried, steady and true affirmation. And that is I'm affirming with all of our lovely brothers and sisters that are part of the Reformed Brotherhood podcast and family who participate online and send us voicemails. And we have a question cast coming. Uh, in addition to that, I want to especially affirm with brother Jonathan and brother Nick, who joined recently in supporting us financially through patreon.com. It's because of brothers and sisters from all over the world, honestly, who give to the podcast that keeps it running. It's what keeps the lights on here. It's what keeps us moving forward and being able to produce this stuff and to send it to all corners of the earth and to have it sound reasonable and actually pleasant to your ear. All of this comes from all the incidental expenses that kind of like mass up. And we're just so thankful that uh, people give after going forward and giving to their churches first and then coming and saying, you know what? I want to support this. So thank you, Brother Jonathan and Brother Nick. I'm super grateful. And my affirmation is with you gentlemen in particular. Yeah, I feel like every time we thank somebody on the show who's joined as a Patreon, we accidentally slip into like NPR uh, pledge drive season. I'm going to try not to do that (laughs) because we don't need to do that. But I definitely appreciate the people who give of their uh, treasure to help us run the show. Um, there's a lot of little costs that you might not think about if you weren't a podcaster. And then there's always some some pretty significant costs each, usually each year. But um, it's it's nice to have people who are supporting us so we, we don't have to freak out if a laptop breaks or a microphone goes down. We, can, we have a, a, a buffer built up so we can do that. So thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much for supporting uh, the gospel as we seek to share it in our own little corner of the internet and for joining the brotherhood and for uh, honoring us really as, as, um, as you've shared with us. Right on. And I think we've said it before, but there's like a lot of like a little inside baseball yeah. type stuff that comes with 
the podcast that we just take for granted. So like, for instance, if you go to whatever your, like your favorite podcast app is and you download this podcast and it takes a reasonable amount of time to download it, like a couple seconds, that's all of that actually costs money. Like yeah. all these little things that like, so it doesn't sound like we're talking from the inside of a tin can or that it gets distributed to like all these various platforms all of that actually does cost something. So these lovely brothers and sisters have just joined in that. And I'm so grateful. So if you would also like to get in on that, if for some reason you're thinking, listen, I want to be a part of making sure this is free for everybody forever, then you go to reformbrotherhood.com and there's a little link that says join the brotherhood. And there's lots of ways that you can be a part of it. And they're all really good. There's like no really awesome yeah. way that's not better than the others. So send a voicemail, reach out to us, hang out on Facebook in our group or give. We're thankful for all those things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to continue on my book affirmation train that I've been on the last couple of weeks. So Let's I, I actually think I have affirmed this book before. But as I mentioned, uh, December was supposed to be the, the month of ridiculous numbers of books. And one of the things that happened during COVID is weird shipping problems. And so I had ordered uh, volume three of Petrus van Maastricht. It's a hard word to say. Uh, Petrus van Maastricht's uh, Theoretical <laughs> well Practical done. Theology. And uh, it never came. The, vol- the third volume never come. Amazon kept on saying like, hey, we, we don't know where it is and we're not really doing anything about it. Do you want to cancel your order? And I was like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and then like two weeks later, they're like, we don't know where your stuff is. Do you want to cancel your order? And I finally got around to saying, yeah, just cancel it and ordered it from Reformation Heritage Books directly. It took like six days to get here. So Boom. I probably should have just done that originally. But since volume three is now on my shelf, uh, I've restarted reading volume one again. And it's so good. It's so, so good. And one of the things when I first read through it that I skipped, I'm not entirely sure why I skipped it. I think I just wanted to get to the like the theology part of it. He has this sort of addendum on the front that um, Maastricht wrote this sort of like commentary on preaching methods um, that he variously attached in different editions to different different places in this broader work. And they've attached it to the beginning of this. And it's so good. Like it's so straightforward and good. And he talks about how important it is to have a pretty standard structure to your sermon. So that way the congregation uh, has something to sort of like latch onto so they can kind of remember the sermon points as they unfold and then discuss it with their families versus like some people feel like you just have to follow the text of the scripture. You just have to go directly in the order that the verses go in. There's some, there's some strength to that reasoning, but if, if the person in your congregation can't walk, you know, can't get home and discuss the sermon and be able to have some sort of memory of what it was to discuss with their kids and their wife um, and the rest of their family, when they get home, then the sermon hasn't really done a lot for them. So he's a big believer in kind of like structured sermons that have like repetitiveness um, points, you know, s- similar points that that flow logically. So it's it's phenomenal. I remember that the theology portion of it, the prolegomena portion is amazing. So I'm really excited. So pick it up, um, pick up all three volumes and read all of them, but start obviously with the first volume. And you can get that probably not on Amazon since it seems like they're not able to ship books anymore, but you can definitely get that at reformationheritagebooks.com. I love the title, right? Because like that says something about everything that's essential to this podcast, which of course, like theology in some ways begins as like this intellectual center, this mental exercise. 
but it's never meant to end there. And that really is like a really wonderful introduction to like just the topic today. This idea that you know, when Paul speaks about godliness as this great gain, what he's not saying is like we should use our knowledge of God again as if we're like sifting through his trash as some way to like basically self-aggrandize or elevate ourselves or prop ourselves up or become more smart. But like this should lead to this changed character that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, whereby which we live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've received. Like that is theology for the purpose of godliness and piety and sanctification. All of these things coming again under the force, like the breath of the Holy Spirit. So I mean, I know sometimes we get the critique that we talk about technical things. Why does this really matter? We hope that they all matter in the yeah. sense that like we're, all of us are receiving them in such a way that it changes and helps refine the way in which we understand what it means to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But that ultimately we're different because of that. Again, not because like it's easy to learn facts or statistics, but it's much harder, of course, to like use, and I would say like in a secular natural sense, it's much harder to use that to discern into wisdom. But here we have the Holy Spirit who will lead us into that truth. So just truth for the sake of truth is always good. But the kind which is more about us and more about somehow positioning, a posturing or signaling is not what we're after here. And and that's why like we go to great lengths to talk about deep theological matters because it leads us ultimately to conversations like we're about to have right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I'm going to make a co-executive decision since neither of us have denials <laughs> planned. Uh, why don't we just get into our topic? And since you are kind of the dealer of the topic, why don't you let us know what we're talking about today? Yeah, let's do it. So if people are tracking with us, they know that we've been speaking at length about the Trinity and about lots of aspects of the Trinity. And of course, that's like a well that we can continue to plumb forever and pull up all of this good, delicious thirst quenching water. And so while there's no way to say that it's been definitive, though, that is the thing that I like to say about all of our episodes. We know in this case that there's so much more that could be said so much we don't even understand. But I thought it would be a good time to talk about how all the stuff we've mentioned really starts to play out and how we people, how we hear people speak about the gospel and about the Trinity and about its application in our lives. And one of those ways, like the easy door to walk through the one that seems like a great entry point is how we speak about what it means that when we become saved, when God saves us, or if you have more of an Arminian background or to use more Arminian-esque language, if you've received or accepted Jesus or asked him into your hearts, there's a presence we know that God is with us in that relationship. But what does that mean in light of inseparable operations? And also, what does that mean when we speak about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as it relates directly to our lives in light of all the things that we've said about God. Yeah. So one thing that's sort of a disclaimer, because we love our disclaimers here on the Reformed Brotherhood. One thing that often comes up when you're talking about sort of more technical, maybe you want to call it like advanced theology or something like that, is people sometimes wonder if the simpler articulation is insufficient. So for example, Jesse and I can go into great depths and great technical level about the the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostases, the interpersonal relations, you know, we can go into a a fair amount of technical depth on that. So the question sometimes comes up is, does the person who just has a simple confession of the Trinity that says, I believe that there's one God who exists eternally in three persons, uh, but can't, can't or doesn't articulate 
more about what that means. Um, it's important to remember that a true confession is true as far as it goes. So, Amen. so just because a a true confession could be articulated more finely, or could press farther into mystery than it does, or could articulate more around the peripheries, doesn't mean that it's insufficient or wrong. It just means that it's not going as far. Um, and I think that this conversation that we're going to have, the topic we're going to talk about. It's one of those things where we have to be able to draw the difference between someone who has a simple confession that is true as far as it goes and someone who has pressed further and has articulated it wrongly, right? So we'll, we'll get into sort of what, what that element is when we talk more about it, but it's important to recognize that sometimes people say things that on the face of it, someone thinking from a more technical perspective or for someone who has gone further down the road of articulating a doctrine, it may actually feel and seem wrong, even though it's right. not, it's just not as far down the road. And sometimes the simple confession on its face sounds contradictory to the deeper confession or the, the more articulated confession. So we have to be able to draw that distinction. I think it'll be clear what we're talking about when we kind of get there in this conversation, because we, we don't want to, <laughs> We don't want to go into this here talking about what we're going to talk about and somehow come across as though we're bashing a certain way of talking or a certain a certain right. confession that in one, on one level is absolutely true. It's absolutely the case um, and and is true as far as it goes, but we're going to go a little bit deeper and we're going to have to articulate things a little bit more finely. A good example of this would be someone who says, um, Mary is the mother of God. Right. So, some people look at that and they go, well, that's not true because, you know, God has no mother. God is eternal. God has no beginning. And and those are true statements. But the real technical way to say that is Mary is the mother of God, the son, according to his human nature. Right. So we've, we've right. clarified and articulated that further. That doesn't mean that the the less articulated version of the confession is not true. It simply means that there's more that could be said. But but you don't always have to say that. And I think we're going to run into some similar kinds of dynamics with today's topic. That's super helpful. I'm glad you said that, because in some ways we'd like to say that like this simple expression, this simple confession is the one that's always true because it's very tightly coupled with reality. Right. That it's not convoluted by a lot of extraneous thinking. It's not so far off the mark because it starts at the center. And that's fine. So we should all start there. But then, of course, like the Apostle Paul says, like, listen, you should be desiring like the spiritual meat and you're still right. just drinking the milk. So there's this encouragement. There's almost a challenge to say like, it's good to start there and you ought to, but it doesn't mean that it should preclude you, nor should we take like extra pride in saying, well, I'm not going to go further than that because that's like the simple thing. So as you can see like how this gets put on both sides, there might be people who would be puffed up and say like, well, I know a lot. So therefore I'm more spiritual. And yeah. then you might have other people that like, well, my confession is simple. It is just Jesus. Yeah. And actually I am more spiritual than the person that tries to parse out all of these things. These, of course, just like anything else, there is error in the extremes. And so what we're saying here is like, there's also like just a blessedness in wading in deep into the waters of God. And so we want to try to do that, but as accurately as possible in like any kind of language, we fall into a place sometimes where we find that we're a little bit off the mark, even if we're well-intentioned. So without like further ado, I should just say the thing that we're kind of going to get after and what we've just been circling so far, which is there's a lot of talk about when we come to the place where God saves us. What does this mean, especially when we speak about like being indwelt by the spirit 
And colloquially, we often find Christians saying, especially evangelical Christians saying, well, Jesus is in my heart. And of course, we know that the Spirit also is indwelling Christians as a down payment. And you've also heard Tony and I speak at great length about inseparable operations. So what gives, man? Where is all of this set itself down? This is like a jello mold. Yeah. How does it all set into a place where it actually gets formed? Yeah. And, and you know, everyone knows how much I respect and appreciate the writing of Michael Horton and his various broadcast ministries. And one of the things that he uh, commonly talks about is how he'll sometimes hear um, – evangelical pastors especially sort of go on these meandering prayers where it's like, dear father, we thank you for coming and suffering on the cross and for sending Jesus to die in our place and to, <laughs> you know, dwell in our hearts and, you know, and, and, <laughs> right, then, and right. then in your name. And, and so he, he kind of like uses that as an example of where theolog- a lack of theological precision can actually be a problem. Um, and, and it's true. Like, the father didn't die on the cross. The son is not the one who is identified in scripture as indwelling us. And there's real good theological reasons to draw those distinctions. But on the flip side, we also have to articulate and have to understand what we've been talking about with inseparable operations. So the the cross example is a little different, but the fact that the spirit indwells us the whole point of the whole point of uh, that is so that the Father and the Son's presence can be present within us. Right so, on. so we we can sometimes go too far down the road to to separate the persons of the Trinity in our desire to be articulate in our prayers, in our writing, in our songs. You know, sometimes you'll you'll you'll. I think you'll run into a really well intentioned Christian, and I think I've done this before. That will pick apart a. Uh, a song, whether it's a real fluffy evangelical song or whether it's a hymn, whatever it might be, they'll really pick it apart and parse apart every single little detail. And in so doing, sometimes they actually separate the persons of the Trinity. So I remember there was a real, a real live debate one time in a Facebook group that I was in on whether or not we can say that the spirit is, uh, is the father is the creator or whether we have to say that, that Jesus is the creator. And there was Bible verses getting thrown back and forth. And that, you know, people were, people were kind of getting really, really like aggressive about it. And the reality is because of inseparable operations, all three persons equally participate and equally act in the act of creation. And so, so we have to, we have to be, intentional, but we also have to recognize sometimes it's okay to say that Jesus lives in my heart because he does from a certain perspective, but this is where, this is where theology becomes not just theoretical, but becomes practical is we have to know as, as theologically minded and, and more, I think reformed Christians tend to be better well-read on average than your average Arminian or your average Lutheran. I think, I think the average reformed Christian in the pew tends to be a little more interested in the book side of uh, theology, where sometimes, at least in my experience, other traditions are much more like, yeah, it's fine. I, you know, I pray every day and I, I read the Bible and I go to church on Sunday, but I'm not so concerned about thinking about things all that deeply. Um, so we have to be careful not to over-articulate our theology in, and over-apply mm-hmm. our theology in a way that actually is right unhelpful. But we also have to be careful because we have some of that knowledge that we are making these these category distinctions and understanding them because it does change how you pray. It changes how you think about God. It changes how you interact with and relate to God. It changes how you teach other people about God. It changes all these things. And we have to be able to draw those distinctions and sort of meet people 
meet people where they're at. And I don't mean that in like a squishy missional, uh, like <laughs> seeker sensitive way, but I mean like you have to be able to articulate theological truth in a way that a person can actually understand and appropriate. And if you're so narrowed in on picking apart a statement because you can say it clearer and the clearer way to say it makes it sound a little different, then I think sometimes right. you miss, you miss the point of, of theological discourse entirely. Right. I think that's fair. And yet, like, I think what we're saying, or at least I'm saying is like on the margin, being able to try to gain more clarity in even an expression can be so helpful because it can lead us to greater doxology and appreciation. So like, for instance, let's talk about this thing about what it means to have Jesus in your heart. And so like in a way, in a colloquial way, of course, it's not wrong because we're talking about all of God being involved in all that God does. And yet in another way, it's not super helpful because it can break down or try to, let me say it this way, it can amalgamate the purposes and the persons of God in a way that can constrain some of our appreciation and our doxology. Right. So I think this is where it can be both helpful in the sense that like you're saying something that is true, but unhelpful because at some level you want to try to bring greater specificity to that. Not because like you're afraid, like if you don't, you will be wrong and suffer condemnation, but mainly because like it should be the mark of all great Christians to continue to, to seek after knowing their Lord better. Yeah. And in so doing, be able to describe his character with increasing specificity and accuracy. We're never going to get it entirely right. We've already gone on record and saying that many, many times, but this idea of understanding what it means, for instance, for Jesus Christ to be right now in bodily form in the presence of God, the father is to automatically push against language that says like Jesus is walking among us right now. I sometimes hear that kind of language. It's super well-intentioned, right? Like they're trying to say there's a presence of Jesus here because everybody look, can look up and say like, Jesus didn't actually come in and sit down. We got all kinds of issues if he is present that, that's we're talking about a whole other day. Right. That is the day of the Lord, not the Lord's day, but the door of the Lord. It's a whole other thing. So, like, we recognize that we're trying to emphasize the unique positions of Christians as the beneficiaries of God's saving power and grace and their His active involvement in our lives. But to again try to like conflate these things, even if you're trying to express that, can be unhelpful. And so, I, I that's where like. Again, it's not like if you are a person that God is privileged to have access to reading and books and podcasts and you have some intellectual assent or access to these things that makes you a better Christian. That's, that's not true at all because the confession and the truth is exactly that. But these things are important to us in that they ought to lead us into a place where we're actually more gracious, more humble, and more willing to worship as we understand God a little bit better. Like these things are also gifts. So I really struggle with Christians who seem to flaunt or lord these things over others yeah. because it seems to be incompatible with the way in which God describes himself and gives us the gospel. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed too is that this is going to sound almost, uh, this is going to sound scandalous, I think, but you know, coming coming out of an evangelical background way back in the day, it feels like a lot. It's ironic, actually, maybe not ironic, but we're recording this on January 23rd, which is actually uh, the day that I became Christian, right, in 1998. Oh, so congratulations. Uh, coming out of that evangelical background, right, I went down on the floor in at a, a Choir of the Fire youth conference and prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. And although it was a, a Choir of the Fire in a super hyper charismatic context, the work of the Spirit 
in salvation, in indwelling me, got totally displaced by this idea that Jesus was living in my heart, right? It was like the Holy Spirit was just this like add-on that I didn't understand anything about what the Spirit did. And in the same way, I think sometimes, you know, when when a, an evangelical, and I want to say this clearly, we can pray to any person of the Trinity or to the Trinity right. as a whole. We, we have the liberty to do that. And we should at various times in various ways, we should pray to each of the persons of the Trinity, but the kind of standard routine evangelical, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I pray to the Lord Jesus, dear Jesus, please give me this. Please be with me for that. Please save my friend. Please do this. Dear Jesus, do this in evangelicalism. And this is the milieu that a lot of people in the reformed world came out of. Jesus becomes such a central focus Rightfully so, for all the right reasons, but because there is this lack of theological precision and this lack of theological knowledge, it turns into this overemphasis on Jesus. So rather than praying to the Father through the name of the Son and in the power or in the presence of the Holy Spirit who makes our prayers effective— Instead, it all collapses in on the Son. And so now we've displaced right. the work of the Father in right. in answering prayers and per, in in his providential care over the world, right? The, the Father in Scripture is, is typically the one that the work of providence is appropriated to, right? The Father is the one who plans from eternity past. The Father is the one who uh, sovereignly rules the universe. The Son is the one who applies, who obtains redemption and perfects all of the work of the Father into creation, and the Spirit is the one who applies that. But when we have this hyper-focus of our language on Jesus, Jesus, Jesus— we displace the other persons. And so I was reading in uh, Joel Beakey's first volume of his systematic theology, and I just want to share this quote. Um, it's on page 109, and he says, the heart of Reformed theology is the knowledge of the triune God. And so the, the reason this is important is because, is it true that by the Spirit, the, the Son lives in our heart? Absolutely, 100%. But if we, if we in our zeal to remain simple— which is what happens a lot of times. And and this comes from the best place of motivation, right? A lot of times of it's a motivation to try to stick close to the language of Scripture, right? People want to stick close to the language of Scripture, and that is absolutely commendable and appropriate, and it's, it's a good thing. But sometimes in our zeal to not articulate things in ways that are not the way the Scripture articulates it, which is, I mean, that's the task of systematic theology, is to take what the Scripture says and articulate it in a co- comprehensive, cohesive way that looks at everything the Scripture says. In our zeal to stick close to the language of Scripture, we sometimes run the risk, especially if we have a sort of superficial knowledge of Scripture and we're not really marinating in it and pickling in it the way that we like to talk about. If you have right. a, a more superficial superficial uh, understanding of scripture and you're trying to stick close to that language, then this phenomena where we do displace the work of the spirit and the work of the father, uh, it really happens. And that has real consequences for the way we think about theology. The charismatic movement tends to do the same thing with the spirit, right? They displace the work of the, of the father in maintaining and, and sustaining the world. They displace that almost to the point of deism, where the world just is what it is. It's a natural thing, and everything happens according to natural consequences, unless God interacts with it. And then it's this miraculous thing. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is intimately involved 
involved in every element of the creation and right. every element of sustaining it, and that without his word, it all ceases to exist. Well, when we have this theology that's over-focused on the spirit, or our language is over-focused on the spirit, then we've now displaced the father in his work of providence, which the son and the spirit participate in and fully are doing, but his appropriated work of providence, we've displaced him. We end up with like a weird practical form of deism where where God is basically uninvolved with the creation, except in these rare moments where he interacts miraculously. So this can happen. This can happen in all sorts of different ways across all sorts of different theological traditions. Um, sometimes the reformed actually focus more on the father than they do. And to the, to the exclusion of the son and the spirit, because we're focused. Sometimes we're so focused on the sovereignty of God and the majesty of God and the, the royalty of God and we're so focused on the glory and magnifying the glory of God. We can get overly focused on either the father as a person or sometimes this sort of abstract idea of God that doesn't have any person in view. It's just this idea of God. So we, we're, we're going to we, we want to go to the scriptures and look at a couple of these passages where this language of the spirit of Christ indwelling us where this comes up. And I want to show I think Jesse has a passage in mind and I have a passage in mind. I want to show how this inseparable operations theology we've talked Talked about actually comes out of those passages and helps us understand them. Right up, man. That's is that as if we planned all this, <laughs> and we definitely didn't. Which we definitely we did, did not. <laughs> so this God, is happening God in is real time, folks. It is. God is good to us. It, it strikes me as I heard you speak. One of the things I want to mention as we go on to the scriptures here is that how good God is to us by giving us this disclosure of Himself. In right. other words, the older I become, the hopefully more mature Christian I am. I've realized that this is for our great glory, for God's great glory and for our great benefit. He's not, he doesn't give us these methods, these means by which to understand him to make us more stressed out as if like you don't come to me and say the right things, do the right way of going about it. Then somehow you're a lesser Christian. He does this because it's just glorious to understand him in new and different ways and ways that comport with the scripture and to have, again, a little bit more specificity around that. So for instance, you brought this up. I think we've mentioned this a couple of times, how you can pray, and you ought to in some ways, to all three persons of the Trinity. And yet, God has provided a very like clear conscription for like how prayer ought to be structured. And the best way to do that is to pray to the Father through the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. So many years ago, I undertook that as I said, listen, I want to be faithful to that. If God says, like, this is the method by which I would ask you to pray, I want to do that. And here's what I found is not only does that, does that not stress me out, but in being committed to that, every time I pray now and I am particular or specific or focused to pray to end that prayer in Jesus' name, it actually gives me greater appreciation for the Trinity in my prayer life, right. that each one, all of God is working. And at the same time, there are specific persons which we do not conflate, and they are all involved in my salvation and in my prayer life. So we lose that if we just kind of casually say, if we're not particular in our direction, is there anything wrong with that? I mean, the people are not being, I think, placed under condemnation for honest, convicting prayers, which have fidelity to scriptures in the way of pleading before God. Is it better? Is it more joyous? Is it more lovely to be able to see all the Trinity in the act of prayer? I don't think any of us would say no. Right. So this is a great, I say that all because it's a great blessing. And so speaking of that, let me throw a little passage at all of us from Ephesians 1. I'm going to kind of put two pieces together here. 
But I want everybody, especially us as we're talking about this, like to, again, to your point, Tony, to hear the inseparable operation and yet the way in which we're seeing the different persons of God come together in this lovely harmony. So this is Ephesians chapter one, beginning of verse three, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, like, let me ask, what human being could come up with this kind of amazing language about who God is and what God does? Like, there is, at the same time, a cohesiveness in the will of God represented in all of the essence of God, and yet there's particularity in the persons of God that is just like unparalleled. This is, as you said, the eminence and the transcendence of God, like just dropped into our lives. Yeah. And you know, it, it's it's funny because, it, you know, when you study theology, you run into all sorts of random stuff, um, especially if you're studying it in the academy. So when, when you go through like a seminary course, the point of a, of a seminary training, especially um, if you're in like an evangelical seminary where I went, like Gordon-Conwell or um, like Trinity in uh, Illinois, something like that, you're reading a wide range of theologians. And one of the most common things you read is that there's this development of doctrine in the New Testament. And there's, there's kind of like a low Trinitarianism. There's like a nascent Trinitarianism that's not developed. I don't know how you read this passage and not come to the conclusion that Paul had this fully orbed, robust, thorough doctrine of the Trinity that he was already appealing to. He was already drawing on and that his readers this would have made sense to them, right? He doesn't explain what any of this means to his readers. He assumes that someone in the congregation, obviously there's a pastor or or an elder, there's some sort of leader in the congregation that is reading this and who is responsible, just like pastors are today, is responsible to explain and articulate what this means within the faith. But somebody understood this. Somebody read this and went, oh yeah, this makes sense to me. Like Paul Paul was (laughs) sending this to, and Ephesians is probably a circular letter. So Paul is sending this to multiple churches just with the assumption that they understand the doctrine of the Trinity that's presented in this text. And so I think it's it's amazing to me how even if we want to stick close to the scripture and we we feel like that means we have a we need a simplicity of language. Even something like this is a very complex theological proposition being put forward. It's a very complex theological system. And we can see here, right, God is predestining us in Christ. Christ is the one in whom we are predestined, and in him we receive an inheritance. If you were to have kept going just down into uh, the next couple verses here, 
uh, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge right of him. So there's this, there's this Trinitarian work that's happening. And th- this is why it's important is because the Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith. And anything less than a Trinitarian faith, even if it's a simple Trinitarian faith, that's okay. But anything less than a Trinitarian faith is less than Christian. So when we have these different ways of talking and we leave them kind of as they are, and they cause us to slip into some sort of, uh, usually some sort of like modalism where where we focus on one person and the other persons of the Trinity end up being aspects of or accretions to some sort of like attachment to the the main person of the Trinity, we've actually fallen into some sort of sub-Christian category. And again, that's not saying people who do this and even people who think like this are heretics that are going to hell. That's not what we're saying. There are plenty of people that think that the Trinity is like ice and water and H2O and they're wrong, but they're not heretics and they're not hellbound, right? They, they they are in a position where they love the Lord. They think this is what the Bible teaches. They're trying to do better. They're trying to understand more. And they just haven't gotten there yet. And God, God is not going to condemn people who truly trust Jesus Christ as God, who came and became flesh and saved them. He's not going to condemn those people because they can't articulate the Trinity to the same level that Jesse and I could, or that Joel Beakey could, or that Petrus Van Maastricht could, right? Not everybody is a, is a technical academic theologian. Not everybody's going to get there. But I think that it's clear from this that we can't rely just on a simple Jesus lives in my heart. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus saved me. There's got to be more to the gospel than just saying Jesus saved me. It's true as far as it goes. And if that's as far as someone can get that they know somehow Jesus is God, the father is God and the spirit is God. And that Jesus became a man and saved me. If that's the farthest down that path of articulation they could go. That's, that's a fine, that's a totally fine confession. But I think even a, even a, moderately thorough read of scripture propels us down that road further. Even if we just use the scriptural language that's given to us, we are already down the road further than that. If, if we just take a little time to to dive into and dig into it. Right. Well, so let me ask you this then, because I want to hear your response first, because it's a setup, it's a trap. And then I will (laughs) respond as well. It's a trap. But so like, the question that I think this all begs then though, is we already said, and I agree with you that like, of course it's not inappropriate to, to hold these like kind of foundational views and maybe to kind of speak to them in general terms, but what should we ex- be expecting particularly of our pastors and yeah. elders when it comes to like describing this in the way that Paul has set it forth? Is there a higher expectation? Yeah. I mean, uh, the Bible straight up says there's a higher expectation, right? Not many of you should be <laughs> teachers because the there's stricter judgment. Um, elders are expected, you know, first Timothy three, I think elders are, you know, expected to be able to teach their they have the faith that's one handed down to the saints. They're expected to contend right. for that faith. I mean, there's all sorts of passages in scripture that that include the idea that pastors are expected to uh, understand the scriptures and live in the scriptures and and be acquainted with the scriptures on a deeper level than than the average Christian is. And even even as I said, even the fact that this more lofty, technical, difficult language is present in the scriptures and that pastors are given the task not just to read the scriptures out loud, but to unpack and explain the scriptures, right. that that uh, necessarily means they're expected to understand it well enough to teach it. Um, but that said, I think there are a variety of... Um, 
contacts, right? Sometimes you, sometimes you have, I'm probably going to offend somebody when I say this, but sometimes you have like that small, small town country church and there's no academic pastor. There's nobody who's been to seminary, but there's, there's a sweet old saint who has, has been a Christian his whole life and has read the Bible a hundred times and, and maybe has a copy of Matthew Henry and has dipped in there a little bit. And, and they have just a simple, straightforward understanding of the, the gospel. And they, they preach that faithfully and they teach that faithfully to the best of their ability. I think the Lord calls pastors, especially full-time vocational pastors, he calls them and he expects them to study the word diligently, to, to rightly Amen. divide the word, which, which doesn't mean to separate it up. It's not, you're not cutting up the word like a dispensationalist would say. You're, you're rightly cutting a path with the word. That's what rightly dividing the word means. You're rightly right. cutting a straight path with the word as your tool. Well, that requires, that requires training and facility with that tool, Right. So I think, I think the answer to that question is ideally, yes. I, I, I mean, I think in our current world, seminary tends to be the way that a, a, a man gets these skills. It's not the only way it could happen. Right. Um, there are plenty of people who in their own personal study have come to an appropriate level of knowledge and technicality and training and understanding um, to be ordained. And that's, that's the purpose of an ordination council, right? Whether it's a, whether it's a, a local church that, that does an ordination council or whether there's a, an association of churches, uh, like a Baptist association that does an ordination council or a presbytery, you know, wh- whatever that ordaining body is, they're assessing not just the character traits of a man, which is very important, but they're also assessing, does this man know the Bible well enough to be able right. to teach it? Is this, is this man competent in Greek or Hebrew enough to understand some of the, the, you know, the nuances of this text that don't present themselves in English? Um, does this person have a, enough of a logical mind to be able to communicate that in a way that's meaningful? But also at the same time, and th- this is where I think it gets so tricky, right? Charles Spurgeon came to faith because he got stuck in a snowstorm and the pastor of the church that he got stuck at, it wasn't his church. He was walking somewhere and he took shelter in the storm and the pastor who was supposed to come and preach the sermon in that service couldn't make it. So some guy got up and just read the Bible, like read passages out of the Bible. And that's how Charles Spurgeon got saved by simply hearing the the written word preached in not even like explain, just read out loud. Um, right. You know, Augustine, same way. Like he, he heard some kids saying, take up and read, and his eyes fell on a particular passage of scripture and was converted. But that's not the normal way that preaching takes place. And so while we might have some of these counterexamples of effective ministers who are not well-trained and maybe not able to articulate the doctrine with any level of specificity or technicality, that's not the norm. So I think I think that a pastor who reads this passage and can't explain how we see not how not how the trinity is sort of maybe a little bit present, but actually explain the doctrine of the trinity from a passage like this, I think that's that's an atypical kind of pastor and and that person although it's true that God may call a person like that into a into a pulpit and that's the that's the purview of the local church and whatever whatever calling body there might be in whatever tradition you're in that's their responsibility not mine i think that's the exception to 
the rule. I think God ordinarily calls men who have a particular ability to understand the scriptures and provides right. providentially for them to receive training to understand the scripture, whether that's formal training in the seminary or sometimes, you know, Calvin was a lawyer, right? He didn't have the same kind of formal theological training that even someone like Luther did. Right, Calvin was right. a lawyer, so he he had a different turn of mind, but that turn of mind gave him an ability to assess and analyze texts and to be able to explain those texts, and he learned that from being a lawyer. So there are a lot of people who come from other backgrounds, other other training pathways that still are given, uh, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? I was just going right. to say that. There's all sorts of men in the history of the church, but I do think that those men they're the exceptions that actually prove the rule. The fact that we look at someone like Calvin and go, wow, it's really interesting that he was a lawyer and didn't have theological training. That should right. tell us that that's outside the norm. That The fact that that's right. even notable is outside the norm enough to tell us, yeah, the normal pathway is for a man to be trained. Right. Like I said, right now, the normal pathway is an, is an M master of divinity from an accredited school. It doesn't have to be that, but I think right now that's kind of the pathway. Yeah. And this is very good. Like I think the point we're making is that, there is an expectation that our pastors would speak in particular ways that be like very direct right. with their language, but very specific with it. And that that's the expectation we would have. And they would lead us into this increasing degree of like depthness and specificity, which it might be hard on our own apart from their wonderful influence to enter onto that path. That's like totally okay. And yet at the same time, the beauty of this is, and we're talking about especially like the work of the Trinity and the various persons of the Trinity, the spirit leading us into all truth means that, like it's totally cool to be a John Bunyan yeah. who like just because he invested himself deeply in the scriptures and our ultimate upper bound isn't our own human intellect, but the way in which the spirit opens and enlightens our minds, that there is great hope for all of us that just by investing ourselves into the reading of God's word and into relationship with him through prayer, that we might understand things that are far beyond even the training that we've had. So we expect, of course, our pastors, our leaders, those who are called and qualified, they ought to undertake training in that way. And yet for all of us, even those who are not called to that kind of responsibility, where the gravity of teaching falls under a mantle of responsibility for leading others, that we ourselves may still have insight into the scriptures that comes through the Holy spirit. I fear that sometimes in our day and age, we fear we, it's easier to read other resources that we feel like help us to open up the scriptures without investing the hard effort. Uh, maybe I'm just talking about myself, the hard effort in wading through the scriptures and in desperately praying through them on our knees, that God would help us to understand what they mean, not just so that we have a bigger mind, but so that like when we walk out on Tuesday morning, that we're actually following after the Lord Jesus Christ yeah. more intently, more passionately. Yeah. So like that is our ultimate plea is that yes, we want to understand it. Yes, we expect our leaders to have a greater gravity understanding of that, but also responsibility falls on us. And that is what the spirit has enabled us in fact to do. So again, like conflating roles here is a problem, which is why like in basically all of the confessions you have, I've always found interesting the language where there's the speaking of God and unity and harmony. But also, like they're very distinct. It's almost like they, they, uh, they say all that stuff and they slap you in the face and be like, "What? Well, stop it! Don't think that like don't <laughs> conflate the persons." Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like they're very clear that like you need to understand the work of God and the economy of God, but then you also understand that God is one. And for whatever reason, like you just brought up, this was apparently very plain 
to the people of God, like the right. Israelites and the people in Paul's writing, such that like again, there's not a lot of commentary. It's almost like it takes for granted, like you guys know this, right? right? Like I'll just I'll just put it out there to remind you that this is the case. And in our day and age, we we seem to have to like deconstruct this so right. much to like really kind of come back to the center. Yeah, I mean, we could we could do a whole a whole history episode about the the problems of you know, like 19th and 20th century liberalism and Schleiermacher and what that did to the evangelical <laughs> church's ability to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. But you're, you're absolutely right. And it's not even, um, it's not even a new Testament or an old Testament phenomenon, right? It's not, it's not like the Christians in the first century when the new Testament was being written, had this special knowledge, honestly, like Christians throughout history until about 1850, they, they just understood from reading the Bible and hearing it preached, they just, the doctrine of the Trinity was just apparent to them. It wasn't until people like Schleiermacher and Kant and Hegel and all these different philosophers, right. German philosophers primarily, but not just Germans. I love Germans. Um, until they, they did exactly that. They deconstructed the doctrine of the Trinity and tried to reinvent right. it. Um, and just as a side note, that is why things like um, EFS and this sort of challenging or questioning or re renegotiating the doctrine of divine simplicity. That's why some of these things are so, first of all, it's why they're possible is because most Christians in the pew just don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's because most pastors in the pew are studying in seminaries, which are deeply influenced by these German schools of thought where the doctrine of the Trinity is almost seen like this attachment, right? Schleiermacher put it in the appendix of his, of his theology. So I think it's important because this is a relatively new phenomena, right? A, a Christian in um, the 1650s, 1660s, who took home the Westminster Catechism and and read the question to their children and and said, "What are who are you know how many persons are there in the Godhead?" It would have been apparent to them there are three persons in the Godhead, right? The Father, the right Son, on. the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Like it's not on one level, it's technical, it's it's not easy to understand, but on the other level, it's extremely straightforward and not all that complicated. Um, again, you can go much further than that statement. You can go much further down of what it means for them to be equal in power and glory, what it means for there to be three persons in the Trinity versus one person in three manifestations. Like you can go down those pathways, but I want to go, speaking of the Holy Spirit here, I want to, I want to go to, uh, Romans chapter eight, right? This is the, this is the classic, um, text that demonstrates the Trinity. I think uh, probably the clearest in the entire New Testament. This is the clearest passage that really encapsulates the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'm going to start reading right at the beginning of um, chapter eight, um, and I'm going to keep reading until I feel like stopping. So uh, verse one, there is <laughs> th- there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the mm. spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I'm just going to pause for a second. 
the reason I started reading there is because this this is what shapes and what is driving towards Paul's next statement, right? The economy of salvation and what God does in saving people leads him to articulation to this articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. So we right. have to understand redemption and salvation along with all of the other works of God. But in this passage, particularly redemption, salvation, regeneration, all of these elements, we have to understand these in Trinitarian ways because otherwise they don't make any sense. So picking back up in verse nine here, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Right? So this, this passage is Trinitarian through and through. Again, I, I don't understand how people look at the New Testament and think, yeah, the doctrine of the Trinity didn't come along until, you know, two, three hundred years later. That It's just insanity to me. You cannot have this passage exist without a full, robust doctrine of the Trinity lying under it and explaining it. Right. Right. So, so we have this Trinitarian understanding of redemption, right? That it's primarily in this passage, it's primarily association with the spirit because of what Christ has done that is marking and characterizing the life of the Christian, right? It's that we walk with the spirit, not in the flesh. It's that our minds are oriented on the things of the spirit, not oriented on the things of the flesh. And then we get into this Trinitarian movement where now it's the spirit of God that dwells in us. But it's also the spirit of Christ that dwells in us. And right, if we don't have right. the spirit of Christ in us, then we aren't actually in Christ. So so sometimes, you know, this all kind of started because we were reflecting on this language of what does it mean to have Christ Jesus in our heart, to, to receive Jesus into us, he dwells, he lives in me, all of this sort of like really fun, emotional, evangelical language that's used. What we're saying when we say that. And again, if that's all that a pastor says and they never say anything else about this about the topic, it's true as far as it goes. But we can go so much deeper and we can understand the Trinitarian shape of our salvation. And not just the Trinitarian shape of our salvation, but the Trinitarian shape of our entire Christian life after a generation. When we right. now understand that, yes, Jesus lives in my heart by the indwelling power of the Spirit. And so it's true— because of inseparable operations, that if the spirit dwells in my heart, then the son, according to divinity, equally participates and is doing that act of dwelling in my heart. So also the father. But there's something particular about the way the scripture articulates this, that our life is not, it's, it's, it's true that we should follow after Jesus, that we should imitate Christ. But we do that primarily by orienting ourselves to the things of the spirit. And so yeah. I mean, I, there, we can go so much more on this. We could we could riff on this topic all day long, but it, it's important for us to see that. And again, I'll make this statement. Maybe this is a little bombastic, but kind of going back to the idea of like pastors and training pastors, I think that a man who has a copy of the Bible in their language that they can read, uh, a copy of Calvin's Institutes, a copy of Matthew Henry's Commentaries, and has access to the Westminster standards. I think that man, if he pours over those documents and those are the bread and butter of his own theological 
you know, consumption, I think that man can be qualified for ministry. I don't think that you have to have, I mean, big libraries are great. I have a lot of books. Some of them I've never read. Some of them I probably never will read. And they're, they're just reference books for me. Theological libraries are great. But at the end of the day, if you have someone in history, a reliable commentator that helps you on, helps you understand the theological, the systematic theology. So there's Calvin. If you have someone who helps you with the exposition, there's Matthew Henry, and you have a good confessional document that represents the actual statements the church has made formally, I, I think in addition to the Bible, I think that's all you really need to have. And this is what this is where I think it's important. You actually get so much deeper in understanding and being able to articulate what the scripture says than I think most evangelical pastors are even willing to go. And I don't know if that's because they don't know or because they think that their congregation's not capable of understanding it. I, I don't want to, I don't want to speculate about their, their motives and their reasons, but I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people, not just pastors, a lot of people, they almost refuse to go further. And I, I've never really understood that, but there's such a richness in the, in the Bible itself. There's such a depth and a richness and an articulation of the deep things of God that if you just work at it a little bit, if you just make use of the due use of ordinary means, right? Just like we talked about right when we talked about the scripture as the rule of faith and practice, we can get so far down that road by just reading the scripture carefully and over and over and over again that I, I, I guess, I don't know, I, I kind of pity Christians that don't. I kind of feel sorry for people that that come to the Bible and they they only dip their toes in. It's like somebody. Right. It's like when you sit down for a feast. You know, let, let's say you're going to Thanksgiving dinner, and somebody somebody's got a little bit of a stomach bug, and they're only able to eat a little bit. Like you feel bad for them. You feel bad that there's this feast, there's this wonderful food, there's this great drink in front of them. That there's this there's this pleasurable food that they can they can eat and enjoy, except that they can't. And I feel right. like there's a lot of Christians that are kind of coming to the feast of the Bible and they just take a nibble here and there and they're satisfied with just, I'm just going to have a piece of bread. I'm not going to have turkey and stuffing and, and gravy. I'm not going to do that. And I just think it's really, really kind of sad that that's the state that a lot of Christianity is in. I understand that. And in, in, in addition to that, I think what's hard is that when it comes to the scriptures, we have a teacher who is God himself, who right. is the author, especially the Holy Spirit. So his desire is to lead us into this truth, but that does not preclude us from investing ourselves, so to speak, by way of volitionally trying to come under its leadership and processing it. And again, you and I have been outspoken before about what a time to be alive where yeah. we can have so many copies of the scripture and so many access to it, and we ought to take advantage of that. And so I, I think like maybe as we kind of conclude this conversation, one of the helpful things to point out is when you sometimes couch this idea of being saved in this language of receiving Jesus into your heart, and then there's inevitably this sense that somehow you arise from either your knees or that conversation or the music to know whether or not you're saved. What Paul says here is with me, you want the litmus test. It is whether or not the spirit is in you. And I love how it's almost like, at least in, our, in the English language, in terms of the grammar, he says in verse nine, like you, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then comma, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, right. <laughs> which is to say like, this is the test. 
Like see for yourselves where that the spirit which transforms your life, which brings in all of the fruit of that same spirit, whether or not it is in fact evident, if you're confused, if you want to know how to measure or adjudicate whether that is taking place, whether God has transformed, changed you, whether you are his child, this is the test. Not something you did, not something you said, not a formulation of words, not a place where you were, not some action taken but whether or not the spirit of God dwells in you, if it does, you are Christ. So again, there's this to, to have the simple language is beautiful to have a more robust language is even more glorious then yeah. because it's to understand this down payment, this guarantee, and to see all of the Trinity at work and all of God. And yet to see the distinct influences in parts in which God is doing all of his great work through the different persons it's more than I can possibly handle. Yeah. And yet I, I just think it just leads us into this glorious praise of who God is and what he has done undeservedly for his children. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I watched a, um, a series of conference lectures. I think it was Westminster, California, uh, about the whole, it was a, the topic of the conference was the Holy spirit. And they were kind of making fun of the Westminster, like the Westminster confession guys versus the high, like the three forms of unity guys, the three forms yeah. of unity guys were kind of ribbon at the Westminster guys because there's no chapter in the Westminster confession, uh, dedicated to the Holy spirit. And I think it, it might've been JV Fesco. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I think it was, I think it was Dr. Fesco who kind of shot back and he said, well, that's because the spirit pervades the entire confession. Right. <laughs> and, and it's true. And, and it's, that's not to say that the, the, you know, the three forms of unity aren't like that. Um, they, sure. they certainly are. But, but that's, that's true about reform theology. And that's, that's where I think like, it's funny that I didn't really think this was going to be like a pneumatology episode, but it kind of turned into that. I think it's Definitely true. Is. And like, that's why someone like Calvin is considered chiefly a, a theologian of the Holy Spirit is because the work of the spirit in salvation and taking everything that the father has ordained and everything that the son has obtained and applying it to the saints the work of the spirit is pervasive throughout all of our salvation. And that's what makes us this fully Trinitarian thing. Amen. And so whether, whether you have a simple confession that understands that Jesus became man and saved us and that he's God along with the spirit and the father, and that all three persons work together in the in salvation, a simple confession like that, or a more robust in depth, articulated technical confession as long as we have a confession that does not push one of the persons to the margins, right? It's really kind of like vogue to say like the Holy Spirit pushes himself to the margins. He's pointing at Jesus. And there's a certain, again, there's a certain level of that that's true. But the reality is that the Spirit is this um, is this undeniable actor in the economy of redemption. And he's, right. he's vital to that Trinitarian work. Right, we don't serve a binatarian God. We don't have a binatarian salvation. We have a trinitarian salvation, and so I think I think that that's just really key to to remember. And so often when we insist on, I, okay, maybe I'll draw this distinction. There's a difference between a simple confession of faith and a simplistic confession of faith. Right, that's exactly. And right. when we insist on a simplistic confession of faith what we end up with in most cases in my experience is this flattened out, almost unitarian shape to our salvation. Right. There's one actor who saves us. It's usually Jesus. Uh, and we the, the role or the work that the Father and the Spirit do with inseparable operations in mind, obviously, but the work of the Father and the Spirit is almost forgotten. 
And that's a really big tragedy. And I think that's what I love so much about good theology and good reformed doctrinal theology is that it it forces us because we're looking at the whole counsel of God because we're pulling in these doctrinal statements because we're letting people like Calvin and Van Maastricht and Beeky and Horton and all of these other wise men who've done the work because we're letting that shape and form our theological reflection we are forced now to articulate the rest of the story even though the, articulating just the the basics is not false, there's so much more we could articulate. And we're forced to do that when we wrestle with the whole scriptures and we wrestle with the whole confessional reformed heritage. And that's what I love about it is, is it's given my faith such a vibrancy and such a depth that when I feel like I'm all alone, all of us have those moments, right? All of us have those moments when we're praying and we feel like there's no one in the world that understands us. There's no one in the world that is on our side and that everything is falling apart, right? That's David in, the, in like 95% of the Psalms, right? All my enemies surround me. They, they, they're chomping at my feet. They're taking my, they're taking my stuff. They're killing my family. Um, darkness is my only friend, right? When we get to that moment, all of a sudden, well, I have an advocate, I have an advocate who is standing in the presence of the Father. And what's more, I have an advocate who lives within me and and brings me to the Father. And both the Son and the Spirit together act on my behalf in different ways appropriate to their persons, but they act on my behalf with the Father to bring about my salvation. There's so much comfort and so much joy in that, that it, like I said, it really is, it's almost like I kind of feel sorry for people when they can't or won't dive into the pool and really enjoy the depths of the pool. You know, there's, they're kind of piddling around in the, the shallow end, um, which is because as true as it goes, as fine as it goes, but there's so much more to it than that, that I, I really think I'm glad we had this conversation. Cause I think this is, I'll take your line. I'm ready to run through a wall right now because like, <laughs> I, I'm like champing at the bit here. I'm like this theology sitting on my desk. Like I'm, I can see, Beaky right. on my desk, and I'm like, all right, I got to go because I got to go read this. I got to get into it. I've got Logos on one side. I can read the Bible. I got to like, I got to go. Right. So I hope that this energizes and does the same thing for our listeners because it's such a, such a beautiful, enjoyable tradition. It's such a beautiful, enjoyable religion, and it's it's really. I mean, this is what it is, right? We glorify God and we enjoy Him. That that's what the Christian religion is. We glorify God and we enjoy Him. There's no other religion where the the purpose of the religion is to enjoy God. There's nothing like it in the rest of the world. Even within some parts of, in, in large parts of Christianity, there's nothing like it. So I hope people Amen. are energized and encouraged by this. I hope that people are ready to dive deep into the scriptures and into our, our confessional tradition and really soak up this wealth of, of, of joy that's present in, in the Reformed faith. Well, it only took us like an hour and five minutes, but we finally got there. And that is, <laughs> there is no God like our God. Exactly. And so I hope that, yeah, people are encouraged by that, that it's not just about what you can read or what you can understand, but who you are in Christ and that this work of all of God in the persons of God in our salvation is so real that it changes who we are and how we act and who we understand ourselves to be. So if there's been any encouragement to you in this conversation, here's what I would encourage you to do. And that is, once again, go to reformbrotherhood.com. There's a little link that says, 
join the brotherhood. And as longtime listeners will know, this is my favorite webpage on all of our site because it says the reformation just got a whole <laughs> lot better. We did that. You know, like I say, the reformed brotherhood, just, just making the reformation a whole lot better. There's actually seven different ideas for ways you can connect with us. But I'm going to highlight today that you might want to pass this along to a friend who's thinking about these very things, maybe wants to understand or is trying to process what it means to be part of the family of God, and maybe desperately needs to hear that it's not about them, that what would Jesus do? He did everything. It's all been secured. The Holy Spirit is the seal. Uh, That is really the test, that there's great encouragement and there's great guarantee in that. So we love when people share the episode and it becomes a foil for more conversation to discuss their testimony and the great things God is doing. So I want to encourage you to think today, maybe there's somebody who just needs a little bit of encouragement or maybe needs just a little bit of prodding. Maybe this can be a conversation that helps in that direction. We pray that it is, and we'd encourage you to share it. Jesse, stop talking before I was done typing. Yeah, I, I echo everything that Jesse just said. And and the other thing, we don't we don't ask for this very often, but there's a there's a new ability on Spotify to rate podcasts now. They finally joined 2022. They should have done this like 12 years ago, but um, we don't ask for ratings very often. Um, part of that is just if you like the show, then then go rate it and tell us what you think. But the other part of it is we don't necessarily want to like puff ourselves up. But one thing that right. is true is that when people are looking for podcasts, they take into account the ratings, right? They they look at what people have for to sure. say about the show. Those I ratings <laughs> become, I mean, those ratings become searchable content. So it does help with search right. engine optimization, helps people find the show. So if you are listening to this on Spotify, if you could uh, take a few minutes, go in and give us a rating and leave us a little message um, and share the episode with a friend. If you are an Apple podcast user, which is almost all of you, according to my uh, tracking statistics, uh, hop into po- uh, Apple podcasts on your phone leave a five-star review if you love us or leave a one-star review if you hate us. I'm not sure why you would still be listening at this point an hour plus deep if you hate the show, but (laughs) if that's you, then go ahead and leave a one-star review and tell us what we can do better. Um, And if you are listening anywhere else, then just pick one or both of those and leave us a rating there. And it really does make a difference when people are trying to decide. I mean, everybody's got limited time, so they they don't want to listen to shows that are dumb. So tell people we're not dumb. Tell people the show is awesome. Uh, and do that by leaving us a review on on Spotify or iTunes. <laughs> this is great. It was like it's the best like PSA for <laughs> rating podcasts I've I've heard in a long time. Please tell us, tell other people, we are not that dumb. That's all we're. But here's the thing. The last thing I'll say, and we'll we will close this out. I promise. Is uh, Tony, what I appreciate about you, one of the many things, is that uh, you love Jesus. And that your love for Jesus excites me. And so I hope that when people hear us talk, like it's, it's not just another theology podcast, like here are the right things to think. Here are some really good resources. Like, yeah, sure. All those things are super fun. They, they propel us towards Jesus and hopefully back into the scriptures. But at the end of the day, um, I hope what comes out is that God has been so good to us and we love Jesus Christ. We love God the Father. We love the Holy Spirit. And if there's anything that we can do to turn people toward the work of God and His Son and the Holy Spirit who applies all those great things, that is really what we're after at the end of the day. We, I presume we stand before the Father. We probably won't worry about this podcast that much, only in so much as this was a resource and helpful to spurring those on toward considering Jesus Christ, His work, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit who has done all these things and applied them to our lives. 
I guess that's all that matters in the end. So yeah, maybe you got a good affirmation out of this or a funny denial, but it's about more than that. And we hope that comes across. Yeah. Well, lest we drag this on for another hour and a half until (laughs) next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. (laughs) 